Good morning, everyone. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33. Let us pray together. Father, as we come to study your word, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you would speak to us today. And I pray, Lord, as as I share this message, that you would help me to communicate the truth of the gospel and what you have called us to, Lord, as church members and as husbands and wives, Lord. Bless our time together, Lord. Open our ears that we may hear. Touch our hearts that our lives would be affected and Christ would be glorified as a result. Amen. Amen. My mother called me yesterday and asked me uh, what I was doing, and I said, my wife was out with the three children. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing for my sermon. She said, what are you preaching on? I said, I'm preaching on something in Ephesians. (laughs) Oh, no, but Jonathan, you must have chosen the scripture passage by now. What are you preaching on? You know, Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33. Oh, wives submit to your husbands. Okay, Jonathan, I have some very good ideas. I've, I've, got a, I've got a full sermon planned for you. In fact, I've had a sermon prepared for years on husbands, uh, wives submit to your, uh, to your husbands. In fact, should I take a plane and come over there and I can preach tomorrow morning? <laughs> sure, Amma, that would be a great idea. I might as well call my mom. Sure, Amma, that would be a great idea. Why didn't you come? But Jonathan, let me just tell you, first, don't just focus on Ephesians chapter 5, because you have to take the whole scripture all together. And you know, Paul, he was was a single man. He didn't really understand marriage. And by the way, there's only three verses to wives and nine verses to husbands, okay? And the problem with preachers is that they spend so much time telling wives to submit, and then they say nothing to the husbands, So make sure that you get the proportion right, okay? Just get your balance right, okay? And then she sent me an, e- uh, an email. By the way, did you know that there's, um, look at it, verses 22 to 24, uh, 24 are about wives, and 25 to 33 are about husbands. Jonathan, let them have it. <laughs> yes. And then Robert came to me before the sermon, and he said, are you sure you want me to read Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33? <laughs> yes. I was, to, I was assigned this passage. <laughs> okay, let us start. In an attempt to get our proportions right, I'm going to be starting by giving us an overview of the whole book. And I would like to entitle this study, as this whole series is called, is This is My Church. But I would like to imagine this as rather than being our words saying, this is my church, to imagine that these are Christ's words saying, this is my church. And perhaps a subtitle that I would call this message would be, this is what my church is like, words of Christ. So in chapter 1, we see that Paul praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I would encourage you as I go through, I'm going to be giving kind of an overview from chapter 1 all the way up to our verse so that I don't mix any context. 
and follow along with me, we have to see that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ in chapter 1. He has redeemed us. He's predestined us for adoption as sons. He's chosen us in Christ. He's forgiven us. He's lavished us with unmerited favor through Jesus Christ. He's revealed to us the mystery of God's eternal plan in us and granted us an eternal inheritance, chosen us to be trophies of God's grace. All of this is in Christ, as we learned about a few weeks ago. Not only has he blessed us so richly in Christ, he has given us a deposit, what has been described as an earnest of the Holy Spirit, and he has sealed us until the day of salvation. Praise God. And in view of such a blessing of divine proportions, let us, like Paul, raise prayers of grateful praise, asking that we would have divine enlightenment, that the eyes of our heart would grasp how great is our new hope, how immeasurable is the strength of our Lord, who can work such a great salvation, strength that has been shown in his resurrection and in his ascension to the right-hand seat of the majestic throne in heaven. For our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. Awesome in power is our God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Here is our God, under whose feet will all things be placed, who is head and has authority over his church. I pray, like Paul does, that we would have grateful praise, that we would start to grasp how great the power that was exerted to bring all things under Christ's headship and under Christ as head. In chapter 2, we continue, and Paul essentially says, Remember who you were, dead in your sins, deceived by the devil, and disobedient. And there we hear the words of the gospel. But God, the intervention of God in merciful, loving grace, we who were once dead in our transgressions and sins, are now alive in Christ. We who were cast down have now been raised to the throne room of heaven with Christ and in Christ. And we have received the gift of grace and we are to be fashioned under the workmanship of God to be displayed in the coming age as trophies of his grace and his great kindness. Remember too as we continue on in chapter 2 that we were outsiders to God's people. We are outsiders to the promise of God, but now we are insiders, citizens of heaven, members of the family, and even called saints, built together and knit together in Christ, in Christ alone, our cornerstone, made into a holy temple, we who were less than nothing, even into a dwelling place for the Most High God. In chapter 3, he says again, realize further what we were, Who we are today, in fact, gathered here, we represent the mystery of God, a mystery that was hidden in ages past, that God's plan always included a plan for the Gentiles who were outsiders to the promise, Gentiles included in the eternal plan and promises of God. And even as we sit here this morning, people from many, many nations, probably almost every continent on the globe represented in this hall, we here represent and bring light to the wisdom of God in his eternal plan in Christ for his church. In light of this glorious gospel, I pray that we would have gospel-saturated prayers, that we would further increase 
and be strengthened to grasp how deep and how great our gospel is, to realize its height and depth and width and breadth, the immense dimensions of God's love to us. Praise God for such a great salvation. To God who does above all that we can ask or think. May his be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations. Amen. And this is the context within which he switches from doctrine to application. From indicative, who we are in Christ, to imperative, therefore go and do. It is for the glory of his church and of Christ throughout all generations. So when we finally get to wives submit to your husband, remember this. Chapter 4, he transitions. Again, what I was saying, transitioning from doctrine to practice. And here is what has been referred to by some theologians as the grammar of the gospel. The grammar of the gospel. What do I mean by that? I mean is that the gospel imperatives, the commands of what we are supposed to do, flow out of what has been completed by Christ. It is not, if do this, then something will happen. It's, this has been done, therefore. And even as Paul is a prisoner, again mentioned only in passing, like in the book of Colossians, he calls us to live in accordance with this grace, with the greatness of our calling. Live a life worthy of your calling. In humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other in love, eagerly pursuing the the spirit-filled unity. Start to see the scale of God's plan, which is to unite a people under himself, under Christ as head, not just of Snowden Baptist Church, not just of Fellowship Baptist Churches in Canada, but of people from across the globe, all people who call Christ their Savior and Lord, Not just in this age, but across ages. And to unite all these people, even as a bride for his Christ. Hence God has gifted the church for this purpose with evangelists and teachers and shepherds to build up the church and to strengthen it so that we would all grow in maturity and understanding and come towards a complete knowledge of Christ. And this should be nurtured in a loving community so that we grow up together in Christ. That the church, the body would be strengthened. That we would be knit together, equipped, all bonded around Christ. Boldly built up in Christ where Christ is the source, the lifeblood. And maybe not exactly words from from Paul but certainly his heart. Where Christ is the heartbeat of the church. Remember, don't walk as you used to who you used to be before you were saved, before you were united to Christ. And not only walk in unity, but walk in purity. Take off the clothes of the old self like we heard a few weeks ago. Reject the darkness and the ignorance of your life apart from Christ. Put off your old self, the corrupt talk, the falsehood, the slander, the malice, the wrath and anger. You didn't learn Christ in these ways. And do all of this for the glory of Christ and his church in all generations, even in this generation. Put off falsehood. Forgive one another. Build up with your words. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
Sometimes we promise God, Lord, I will do such great things for you. And yet God has called us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. These are the divine works that God has called you to. Perhaps the works which are greater and more difficult than scaling mountains and crossing oceans. Let's continue to talk about living lives worthy of our calling to one who has wrought such a great salvation for us. In chapter 5, Paul tells the audience of the letter, the church in Ephesus, imitate God as dearly loved children. Now those of you who are parents will know that this is the way that you train children sometimes. You say, come, come, come with me. No, do, do like I'm doing. Copy me. Do like me. No, no, don't put your hand like that. Put it, put it like that. Turn the tap like this. Pull it a little bit, you know. And you teach them gently. As dearly loved children, imitate your father who is loved so superlatively. And live a life of love. Walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. See the sacrificial love. Smell it. Smell the fragrance of Christ's love. Sacrificial love. Selfless love. And in light of exalting such a perfect love, have nothing to do with selfish love. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality and uh, and, uh, selfishness. Have nothing to do with impurity. In fact, don't even joke about it. Because if it is Christ you're exalting and the perfection of his selfless and sacrificial love, why would you even make jokes about that which is impure and immoral? Purity is part of a life worthy of the Lord. And God's judgment will indeed come on those who live lives that bear no resemblance to the sweet-smelling sacrifice of Christ's love. What judgment will come on those who pretend to be enamored by Christ's love and yet dabble and play with sexual immorality and impurity and joke about it? This is nothing to be played with. Have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, he continues. In fact, let nothing of this be even named about among you. And then he continues, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and let Christ shine on you. For the glory of Christ and his church, walk carefully, walk circumspectly, look around, make the most of each day. In the Christian walk, there are no disposable days for careless living. There's no part-time believing or optional obedience. And there's no days for taking obedience holidays. Be reminded of who you were so you will not go and put on your old nature. And then we continue on with something again that we heard a few weeks ago. Be filled with the Spirit. Continually ask God for help. Live in constant fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, fellowship and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit of God. And how frequently do you need to ask God for help? It's each moment. Like Charles was giving in his example, when he rides his bike, he asks God to give him patience on the road. And then a few streets down, he asks for patience again. I have a similar situation when I drive downtown. Lord, uh, you know, help me with these stupid cyclists which are on the road. <laughs> Give me patience. Then I drive to the stoplight and they're zooming past when it's red and I'm about to turn. Lord, give me patience with these stupid cyclists. <laughs> what does living in moment-by-moment fellowship with the Holy Spirit look like? Here's another example of what it looks like. A few weeks ago, I was 
it happens occasionally. Maybe it's happening to you now. My mind was drifting a little during the sermon. And I thought, I'll have a quick look at the passage I'm supposed to be studying and just have a quick look over it. We were in church. I'd worshipped God. I'd asked God for forgiveness. I was uh, living in the spirit of God. And my wife turned over to me and told me to stop biting my fingernails. And my initial reaction was, leave me alone. Can't you see I'm looking at the Bible and trying to hear from God, you know? That was in a split second. And then caught it and asked God by his Holy Spirit, Lord, help me not to be harsh with my wife. And I humbly took my finger out of my mouth and stopped biting it. (laughs) But this is what it looks like in reality on a daily basis. We don't live in the cloud. We live in reality. And sometimes living by the Spirit of God is having patience to ask God. You know, not to react in anger when your wife tells you not to bite your fingernails. These spirit-filled believers need to be overflown with grateful thanks. Overflown with thanks. It talks about talking to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all for the glory of Christ. And perhaps it would be a good idea to encourage all of you, when was the last time this church wrote songs for the glory of Christ? Maybe it's time. We need to start writing songs that exalt Christ, sharing them with one another as spirit-filled believers. And this is the church context. And finally, actually, in the, new, in the NIV Bible, just the verse prior to the ones, wives submit to your husbands, I guess maybe to pacify the wives, it's included one additional verse before the heading, which is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it gives a church context. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the one who is higher, greater, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name. And that's quite a long introduction to get to our passage. Yet as spiritual believers, moment by moment, yielding to the Lordship of Christ, we need to constantly ask for help and cultivate hearts of gratitude which are full of thanks in light of such a gospel, of such a God, of such grace. What does this look like? What does submitting to one another look like out of reverence for Christ? What could be a picture of a life worthy of our calling? What does a life look like where the old is taken off and the new is put on? Indeed, what does union with Christ look like? Give me a picture where humility and gentleness and patience, eagerness for unity kindness, tender-heartedness, and forgiveness. Give me a picture of that. A picture where God is imitated, where we walk in love and in light, where there is the fragrance of love surrounding it, where selfless love takes place. And I don't have an illustration for my sermon, for here Paul gives us an illustration, which will be our entire passage, which is that of marriage. And for those of you who are about to turn off because you say, I'm not married, or I'm no longer married, or maybe you have various stories, this passage equally applies to church members and to husbands and wives. Because we will see, as maybe um, many of you are already aware, that the relationship between husband and wife is a type and a shadow of Christ and his church. Thus, now trying to keep things in proportion, I spent half of my message talking about the gospel. Now I will talk about wives for one minute and the rest about husbands. But wives, as we start, 
you equally have a God and Christ-exalting role to point towards Jesus in the way the church is supposed to submit to Christ by submitting to your husbands. Verse 22, we get to our passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, what does this mean? It means, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For as the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so all wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's what it means. Now, obviously, your husband isn't God. And I think the verse in Colossians, which is almost the same as this one, and almost has an identical preceding passage as well, clarifies a little bit. It says, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is what is fitting. It is almost as if, when God looks on this, this is something which has the fragrance of Christ about it, of selfless, sacrificial love. Neither is your husband God, and maybe your husband is not worthy in your eyes of such submission. Yet it is the obedience to which you have been called. And mind you, he will never be as worthy as Christ is of obedience of his church. And yet in the creation order of things, Christ has set the husband as head over wife. Now the way that I would describe this is that he is not the head in the same way that Christ is the head over all creation and under whom all things shall be gathered as Christ is the head. He's the head with a little h. For when I would like to ask you, when has Christ wielded his authority to, sub, to put into submission his bride, to crush and to force obedience? When has he done that? And... Just by pausing, had Christ condemned us, or you wives, to a life of servitude, you would not be released from your duty of obedience. For love so amazing, so so divine, demands my life and my all. But that's not what Christ has called you to, is it? He's called you to submit. And yet, additionally, wives... Christ has called you to nothing less than what he calls your husband to to do as well. Because your husband, as a member of the church, is well rehearsed in submitting to Christ as head. So husbands, as you wish your wife to submit, as the church is supposed to submit to Christ, you should display that in your membership in the church. What is submission? I'll get to that a little bit later. But sometimes the wrong image of submission that we have is from competitive wrestling, where two enemies are fighting, and one of them manages to get the other person in such a headlock and cut off their breathing that they're finally, against their will, they have nothing to choose. They have to choose between death and yielding. This is not what it's talking about. And yet, it is talking about, finally, 
yielding our will. It's easy to submit when you agree with everything, isn't it? I've spent enough time on the women. Let's get to the men. Husbands, we are simply a shadow, a type. Christ is the true husband. Husbands, you too are called to point to Christ, to point to Christ's sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives are called to submit. Husbands are called to love. This may not seem so radical, although nowadays in this day and age there's no no talk of submission. It's all about love. Sometimes the love of husbands, they love their wives, but yet in jest they show what they are bitter about. When, there are, when people ask at the office, okay, uh, you know, so are you going to buy that new computer? Oh, I need to check with the boss. I need to check with the financial department. Oh, need board approval for that one. <laughs> and under those jests is hidden sometimes truth, bitterness sometimes. That the husband doesn't have the respect that he, ha- he, sh- he believes he's due. Yet what do we see in Christ as he loves the church? He gives up all his divine prerogatives. And yet how worthy do we feel as husbands when we do small sacrifices for our wives and require so much praise for it? Once a week sometimes, once a month or something, I'll take care of all three kids. I'll just feel like I've done the greatest job in the world, you know, for like two hours. And I'm at my wit's end And I want to be praised for about a week for doing that. But don't you realize I took care of all three kids all by myself? Our sacrifices for our wives pale in comparison to Christ's sacrifices for us. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering that would be far too small to praise Christ for his sacrificial love. And not only are we supposed to love our wives and sacrificially sacrifice for them, we're supposed to not do it grudgingly. How many times do we grudgingly submit to our wife just to get her off our back? It's not my words, I heard that at the office. (laughs) But that does not point to Christ, does it? I can just... Feel the women. You tell the men. You tell the men. That's good. That's good. But what is our aim here? I'm not here to vindicate the men or the women. Because as we'll see later on in the passage, we are one. We are one flesh. And as one flesh, we come together to exalt Christ our Savior in whatever way he has called us to. If it's to submit, we exalt Christ by submitting. If it's to love selflessly, we exalt Christ by loving selflessly. And church members, as you hear this, when you hear the, the call of the wives to submit, in fact, wives have a, harder cho- have a harder call because they are called to submit to, to their husbands, to their imperfect husbands. But as a church, we're called to submit to a perfect Savior who has loved us perfectly. What excuse do we have for not obeying as a church? What an image of submission you should see in your husband. 
as he responds to his perfect Savior who has loved him and given all for him, who doesn't bully him into submission. Just as Christ loved his church, verse 26, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or without any blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ gave himself up for his church to purify the church. Could it be that Christ's pattern for the way that we should love our wives should include far above meeting our own immediate needs, their holiness and the purity of their heart? How much time is spent on making the outward appearance free of stain, wrinkle, blemish? But how much should husbands spend time washing their wives with the word to present them holy and blameless, which speaks to a reality far above their marriage? And yet we step on challenging ground, don't we? Because vocabulary that seems to be exclusively for God is used here for husbands and wives. Calling husbands to give themselves up as Christ has done for the church, trying to make them holy, cleansing her. Yet, if we would realize the exaltation of Christ by the picture that our marriage is supposed to portray, would we realize that our marriages have been elevated to such a level to point to Christ himself? Let us also remember that Christ is the one that initiated everything in our relationship with him. So husbands, don't wait for your wives to be lovable before you will be loving. Don't wait for them to, sh- to submit before you will love. Initiate as God has done in Christ in grace. In the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I would like to um, also refer you to Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. How justified we feel sometimes to be harsh with our wives. And yet we will see that spirit-filled believers in the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, we're called to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven you. In 1 Peter, it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We are joint heirs in the gift of life. Let us also be reminded that we have been united with our wife and we are one flesh, just as the church with Christ has been united with him. We love that which is our own. Don't be unfeeling towards her hurt and her pain. For verse 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but fed and cared for their own bodies. Don't you see the incongruity of this, this idea that Of your own body, you feed for it, you care for it. But how much more that which God has bound together as one flesh should you care and nurture your wife? How could you hate or disdain 
or be mindless or scornful of your wife with whom you have been made one flesh under God. Nourish, feed, care for her, you who are now one flesh with her, care for her. Just as Christ has done his church, for we are members of his bodies, you who are church members, grasp the care and nurture of Christ. See how he cares for his body, not only in saving them, but preserving them. See how he calls us and feeds us each week through his word, reminds us of his love in communion, meets with us in worship, who is ever there just waiting to hear from us, who has sealed us with his spirit and given us the spirit as a guarantee and a promise of what is to come. See how Christ cares and loves the body. He's put us in a family. He's knit us together in love. He's united us by his spirit. What benefits are ours because Christ cares for his body? Imagine if that is your prototype of marriage. He continues in verse 31. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. And this is a quotation from Genesis chapter 3 where the writer of the book of Genesis comes to a summary of the whole creation and finally the creation of woman out of man having made a perfect partner for Adam and summarizes that this is the reason, this perfect partner is the reason for a wife to cleave to her husband and leave parents. And yet, there's a mystery here, there's profundity if we would take time to look, that Paul says this is actually talking about Christ and the church. It is not only the mystery that Gentiles have been included in the promise of God, not that mystery, but it is a mystery And it's profound that Christ is united with his church. And perhaps if we would see these words carefully, we would start to realize that perhaps like in the Old Testament, marriage is a type and a shadow. Marriage is seen in a glass darkly. And Christ and his church is the reality. Let us as the bride in the church submit to our Lord. Let's ask our Lord to open our eyes that we would understand the greatness of his love for us. However, the the type and shadow of marriage is not done away with. So Paul concludes in verse 33, However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. And like I alluded alluded to earlier, how many times have we thought, have I thought, I will love once I am respected. And no doubt, how many times have wives thought, I will respect once I feel loved. Yet Christ has called us to obey, not conditionally contingent on our partner's response. Yet it would seem to me that if I look at scripture, if Christ as head is referred to by the man and the role of the church is referred to by the wife, it would seem to me that the role of being an initiator in reconciliation in the family, in love in the family, it is the role of the men. 
as Christ has done for his church. And yet, wives, don't wait on your husbands after this sermon to be loving to submit to them. What does it say in 1 Peter 3? Win them by your quiet submission. It's talking actually about wives in the context of being married to a husband who is an unbeliever. It said, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they would be won over without words by the behavior of, your, of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. What is the call to submission? It is out of reverence for Christ. Determine this day whether you are a husband, whether you are a wife, whether you are a church member, wives that you will submit to your husbands, husbands that you will love your wives, church members that you will submit to your supremely perfect husband in Christ. Let us pray that this picture is preserved. Let us see what also is involved in our submission, that we would live lives worthy of our calling in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other in love, eager to maintain unity, speaking the truth in love, taking off our old self, getting rid of bitterness and wrath and anger and malice, being kind and perhaps more to the men, being tender-hearted living by the power of the Spirit, moment by moment asking God for grace to deal with your wife, that you would show forth the excellence of Christ's love for his church. I would like to ask, have you ever considered that this is the reality, that Christ, as he hung on the cross, perhaps poetically heard these words, would you take these people to be your church? Will you love them and cherish them, protect them and honor them, and forsaking all others be faithful to them? Would you hear the covenant response of our Lord, which as he hung on the cross says, I do? Church, as you imagine what perfection in our church would look like, can you look at a marriage and say, I wish our church was like so-and-so's marriage? And husbands and wives, when you think of what you would wish your marriage is like, prayerfully one day would you be able to say, I wish our marriage was like Snowden Baptist Church. Let us see the greater context that God has called us above our little world to be part of pointing to a greater reality, the greatest story. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Husbands, wives, church members, we all have the same end, and that is to be a signpost to Christ our Savior and his love, a banner that exalts the exceeding worth of our Savior for the glorification of Christ and his church in all generations. What a calling. Let us pray.
Father, how you have loved us. In you, as we look to you, Lord, we see perfection. Perfection as the perfect husband. Lord, you have loved us. You have redeemed us. You have come to us, Lord, when we were against you. Saving us, Lord. Redeeming us. Clothing us in your righteousness, Lord. What do we have that has not come from your hand? Lord, and as we look to you as a prototype, husbands and wives, Lord, help us to love and to respect, Lord. And as church members, Lord, help us to submit under the perfection of Christ our Savior. That all of our lives, Lord, would ever and always be pointing to your greatness, to your goodness. May all praise ever be to you in Jesus' name. Amen.